And there is a special guest in the studio today, Mr. Pato Bantan himself. How are you, man? Great, man. For the few people out there that might not be familiar with who Pato Bantan is, you're from England. England, uh-huh. And when did you start this? Because, I mean, we've got so many albums and so many songs that go back. Um, I guess my first recording really was with the um, English Beat. I did a track on this special beat service album called Pato and Raja Agotak. And then from that came um, two recordings with UB40 and their Bag of Rhythm album. There was a track called Hip Hop Lyrical Robot. And then um, I went and started doing stuff with Steel Pulse. And from then, I started getting my own deals. The epic long song from Pato Bantan. And it was, it was by request from Pato himself, because he's, uh-huh. he's right here. That was the title track also of the first album I did in America. The first album was a Never Given album. Oh, I know. We have that one right back there. Uh-huh. All sorts of stuff just floating around. Uh, singles. I actually think you've got all the, all the records here. I, I yeah, this is the first place I've been to. Oh, seen, excellent. You know, Thank all you. of them. <laughs> Third World Country. I actually wrote that track in a hotel in Jamaica, in the Pegasus. Which hotel? The Pegasus, Pegasus Hotel in Jamaica. You know, because I felt really terrible. I was staying in this beautiful place, and there was so much poverty just outside. And you really felt that? Yeah, it really, it really hurt me because, you know, I was, you know, my parents are from Jamaica, and it was like I was going home. I didn't realize that the poverty is so serious and that racism is so serious you know the the tone of your complexion in jamaica is a major issue (laughs) i i was down there and was really i had the same it had the same effect on me just Uh looking around at the mansions up on the hill and then the closer you move to the street you know, you, mm-hmm. the smaller the houses get until you're in like a doghouse. Uh-huh. And it's really sort of sad and re- gave me a real feeling that I wanted to do something. Uh-huh. Well, you're in the position you just did. You know? <laughs> you're talking about it and writing songs about it uh-huh. and everything like that. All Drugs Out, which I first heard yeah. when I saw you live. Uh-huh. And um, Don't Sniff Coke. Uh-huh. I just wanted to know about, you know, those songs and your feelings when you're um, writing songs. And to write songs like that, it's a real reflection on it's you. It's just, I guess, all the songs I write are just reflections of experiences that I'm going through, different situations I'm in in life, you know, and I always express that lyrically. I, you know, every tour I do, I meet new people, and different people affect me different ways, you know? So now I see that's where all your songs come from. Mm-hmm. The homeless songs, the drug type of songs. Mm-hmm. It all comes from... Never uh, given, you know. It all, all comes from it. personal... Visions of the world, all of it, you know. The main, the main thing really is that I really try to put a positive element across because you can, you can get really um, depressed with the way society and the system is right now. And a lot of times you can get stuck where you're writing something and you just get so involved in it that you don't even want to continue. (laughs) But if you can add a little positive element, you know, like saying never give in, you know, regardless of what you're going through and stuff like that, you know, and and add some spirituality. And I, I meet a lot of people, you know, fans and friends, you know, a lot of the time I... Before a gig, I'll probably go into the crowd and meet a few people. Or after the gig, I'll talk to people after the show. So I get to 
I get a lot of positive feedback from people. What was your first deal? When did they first approach you? My first um, ever deal was with a local record shop guy. <laughs> um, at the time I was being, I did a, a very big show in England. It was a giant show with all these major stars. And I was unknown at the time. They had me on like before anybody got to the show. You know, there was like 5,000 people to be at the show, but they had so many acts on the show. Did they that put you on they like... They put me on when nobody was there. So I, you know... Home eating breakfast you or know, something. I was, I was still glad to be on the bill because it was still good to have my name with all these major acts. What happened was through the night, everything was running so on time that they had space at the end of the night before the last act was due on. And they said to me, would you like to go on and fill this space? And it was me and Maccabee, actually. So um, Maccabee went on. He got a very good um, reception. And then they sent me on. And I, I had this lyric at the time called Alo Tash, Gada Tashiba, which everybody knew because it was like an advert on the TV where they, they had this robot that would do like, what did they call that robot dance? Um, well, this robot would do a robot dance on the TV and he'd say, um, he was advertising Toshiba equipment and he'd say, hello, Tosh, which means like, hello, mate, have you got a Toshiba? Oh. But he'd say, hello, Tosh, got a Toshiba. It's, it's, and it was like major. Everybody liked this advert because of the way it was presented. So some, one of my friends said to me, why don't you write a lyric? Something to do with that. So I did. And when I, when I went on and... I said the first line, hello, Tash got a Toshiba, and the place went crazy. I had a stand innovation. It took me about 30 minutes to finish a five-minute, you know, lyric. But did it, ever, did it ever occur to you that people would confuse that and think that it was some sort of Peter Tosh At the thing? time, no. Well, you didn't realize At that. At the time, either. because as soon as I said, hello, Tash got a Toshiba, everyone in England knows the advert, and there was all these major record companies there, you know, and um, when I got home, Within a week, I was just receiving all these, you know, like 20 page contracts coming through my post from like five different major companies. All because of that one song. One song. And it was like, I was just petrified. And um, my record shop guy at the end of the road said to me, you know, how about we put it out? So we decided that we was going to put it out ourselves. Oh, you know. So you had all the, you had all these major major yeah. people get, offering you all this money, uh -huh. and you just felt safe with your yeah. friendly. I didn't want to. I didn't want to get involved in the business. Friendly in neighborhood record business. guy yeah. down the street. You know, it was. And um, when once I um, once we started to record it and get the cover of the record done and everything, he started receiving all these bribes from these major companies to sell me over to them and all this kind of stuff. Wow, but, that must have felt pretty good <laughs> for just, you, you weren't doing anything, you were Nothing. an opening slot, yeah. and then all of a sudden there's one song and it just yeah. totally ripped it apart. Yeah, and then from there I went and recorded an album with Mad Professor, did some work with Green Seas, but I always tried to keep myself pretty free. Well, you did two albums with Mad Professor. Yeah. You did Captured and, and Recaptured. Recaptured. Yeah. I do have a song off the brand new album, Universal Love uh -huh. just came out recently. Uh -huh. And how is this doing? Are you happy with the response? I'm very, very, very happy. Things just keep getting better for yeah, you. Hey, it Pato. seems as though, because it's like to get into the business, it's like I had to really 
coming with a totally humorous kind of approach. And even when I had certain conscious lyrics, a lot of people would overlook the message and just kind of deal with me on a humorous level. But it's like the more work I do is the more people realize that it's, it's, there is a message there. And on this project, more than, more than ever before, people have really recognized. There was a lot of um, politics going on when I did um, the Wise Up project. And um, the record company thought that the lyrics on it were too serious and too heavy. And um, they wanted me to um, change up all the lyrics. And we'd, we'd nearly finished the album. Sent me like something like about 15 cover tunes and convinced my manager to convince me to cover about five of these I tunes. I don't like the direction this is going. <laughs> this is... You so know, this is this is the inside the inside scoop in yeah. the record business. Huh? Yes. This is what happens. And it's like it's it's a serious thing when you start arguing with somebody like Miles Copeland, um, because you know he's got so much clout behind him. And you and, were just a fledgling yeah. musician, you know. So um, but I stood my ground, and um, I ended up letting them know if I was going to do a cover tune, I'd do one, you know, and just to to cool it because they wanted me to do like half the album with covers and I, I said I'd do one but it had to be something that I liked a track that I had personally meant something to me so I decided to do Spirits in the material choice. world and um, I didn't have to ch I ended up not changing any of my lyrics because um, when uh, my manager told me that I either changed the lyrics or I didn't get the album done i am um, i went home and i told him forget the album forget oh. forget the record deal and i'll just you know you just stood your ground yeah. and it worked yeah absolutely it just it it, it worked yeah. out for you and like with the new album universal love what happened with this project was um they my company's in la my mother company's in la and they have a branch that's based in canada and when i started to do this project i had no manager you know, I just finished with a, a manager I had and I went into the company to negotiate the album. Yourself? Myself. <laughs> and because they didn't want to deal with me up front, they said to me, you can deal with this guy in Canada who is a part of the, uh, the other company in Canada. So I went, okay. Even though I knew it was a bit dodgy, so I phoned him and he said to me, um, what direction are you thinking about going in with this next album? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, the album's called Universal it's Love. The $100,000 question right there. You know? And he said to me, well, I was thinking about you going in the direction of somebody like um, Gregory Isaacs or somebody, you know, of that vein. And I said to him, who's your favorite, you know, who's your favorite reggae artist? And he said, oh, Gregory. You know, and I says, oh, that's why you want me to go in that vein. And I said to him, be honest with me now. Be honest. Forget your, your business and your marketing ploy and tell me who is really your favorite reggae artist. And he said, Bob Marley. And I said, so why are you going to try and push me down, you know, a, a channel just to try and make money off me? I just said to him, I don't want to deal with you. So I went back into the company in L.A., and I said to them, I'm going home, I'm going to record an album, and I'm going to give you the album, and you can take the album or you can leave the album, but I'm not letting anybody 
divert me in any, you know, direction whatsoever. And I said, you can either give me the advance or keep the advance, but I'm going to go home and do the album I want to do. And they was, they was very, very happy with the product, the end product. Do you realize that a lesser man would have would have done anything <laughs> that they said? There's a million bands out there that do exactly yeah. what the record companies and say. At, at the time, I did need the advance. I really needed the money at the time. But, but you held you held yeah. your ground, and it worked out yeah. for you. This is amazing. Yeah. This is a, a, a story, a success <laughs> story like I've never heard before. Right now, I want to ask you about your duets. One of my favorite songs is the Pressure song with Tippa Irie. All right, all right. And that song, it's just, it's almost got, <laughs> it's like a dance hall style. I don't even quite understand how to describe it but it's it, got the dance hall style and then it's got like almost like a jazz sound it's, over it's, it when when we actually made that tune we went to the studio with no idea of music whatsoever and um, we just went into the studio got some musicians and started to build the track bit by bit and it just you know it just happened to work and we were you know well I was very glad with the outcome I think Tipper wanted it to be more dancehall you know, more do do do. you know, more... Yeah, and it didn't have that hard no, backbeat. It wasn't it was a totally different, different thing. We never we never knew what, how it was going to turn out. We just went with the vibe. Besides working with Tip Irie, you worked a lot with Ranking Roger. Uh-huh. And you did, the, you were talking about the special songs earlier and yeah. stuff like that. Do you plan on working with anybody else or working with him again in the near future? Yeah, well, we, we want to do an album together, me and Roger. Like a um, whole album, like yeah. ten songs. Yeah, uh, the two of you. Yeah, Ooh. and um, you know, hit it, us with that, Pato. Do that <laughs> soon. Man. Do that soon. You know, and if I happen to meet any artists and you know, we get along and we can communicate, then it would be great to work with them. So you really keep a total free, open attitude about it. You'll just you'll work yeah. with anybody, and yeah, that's excellent. As long as when we get together, something positive comes out of it. But we'll talk more about this new album. We wanted to listen to this next song with Ranking Roger. With Roger yeah. And this was the first single. And what was uh-huh. the... What, it's called Bubbling Hot. We won't keep everybody in suspense here. Uh-huh. And what was the reaction when that was the first single? Why did they pick that as the first single to be sent out? I guess because um, everybody in the company was, like kept singing it. It was the first time I've ever done an album where I actually walked into the company... Because I was, I was there when I when I delivered the album to them. I actually flew from England to LA, and I was in the company every day. And they'd walk into the company in the morning, and that would be the first thing they turned on the whole album. And they'd be all dancing in the company, singing the tracks, and their their favorite track, you know, was Bubbling Hot. But they really, genuinely liked the album, and I think it was the first album I did that they actually was so into. Really? I don't know if it's because I was actually presenting it for the first time without a middleman putting his opinions and Did you, things over. I mean, is that what you wanted to do? Did you want to bypass the whole management thing and just... No. You didn't want to No, do that. that was never my thing. I always think that an artist needs to have good representation. Yeah. You know, but it gets kind of difficult when management when your management doesn't have the same musical taste as you oh, yeah. and doesn't have the same motivation, when they become monetarily 
motivated, then they want hits. They don't want songs that may live for 20 or 30 years. They just want something that sounds like everything else that's in the charts so well, you, you can go with the flow. Well, let's check out this song from the new Universal Love album. Bubbling Hot, Pato Banton. And I wanted to ask you about a couple of songs. First of all, Too Many Homeless, uh-huh. which was on the live album, and I guess it was new then, Yeah, and it came out on, on the live thing. And then you put it out on Universal, Universal Love. Universal Love, as a recorded, yeah. And tell me about that song. I wrote it when I was on tour. There was a, I did a gig, I think it was in um, San Diego, which is supposedly one of the richest states or whatever. I did this gig at this theater. And um, after the show, there was this guy there and he says to me, um, do you want to um, help me with some food? I'm bringing this to some people. And I was like, this was like 2 a.m., 3 a.m. So I says, okay. So I picked up some some soup or something and bread. And we walked behind the, the theater. And there was something like 100 people in cardboard boxes and blankets. And it really blew me away. I've seen it on the TV. And I've seen the odd one or two here and there. But to see so many all in the same predicament, you know, in such a rich place, it really kind of, you know, it really blew me away. So, you know, I kind of just had to write something. Pamela called up, and she just had one question that she uh-huh. wanted me to ask. How did you come up with your name? Well, when I got um, introduced to reggae music was at the age of eight, when my mom met my stepfather, who was a DJ. He span records for a living, house parties and stuff like that, and clubs. And... um he used to let me be the doorman. At the, we used to live in this house with three families in the house, and there was one room spare. So he set up his sound system in that spare room. We used the kitchen as the bar, and I'd be, my mum would be in the bar, he'd be in the room playing the music, and I'd be on the door, keeping an eye out for the police, because we were selling um, drinks illegally. And um, we'd probably start the party at about 10.30 and it would go on till about 4 a.m. in the morning. And it was a popular thing? Yeah, it was every weekend. The whole house would be full. I'd go to bed some nights at like 2, 2 a.m. so I could get to school in the morning. And you're eight years and, old. And I was about eight, nine, ten, and somebody would be in my bed, somebody would be on the floor, you know. It was like... <laughs> You know, there was some crazy stuff that used to happen. You know, I witnessed a lot of things at a very early age. So, um, but in Jamaica, they have a bird, an, a, an owl, that comes out at night called a patu. And it goes, patu! So because I was always up late at night, and this continued all the way up to like 15, 16, where I started doing it solo as a hobby, going to different parties for different people to entertain them all night. I ended up with the name Patu, you know, the, the night owl. I was always up when I should be in my bed. And then um, the Banton came. It started out as Rankin Pato when everybody was called Rankin. <laughs> Rankin, Dillinger, Rankin, Screw Rankin, Raja. It was, I was a Rankin. And then um, when I got my record deal as a British MC, all the MCs was, used to be singing about being the, the lyric Banton, being the one that could have the most lyrics and keep chatting for the longest time. 
And um, when I went to do an audition in London at this record company, what they did was I wasn't expecting it because I only went down there to record like one single. But what they did was they set up like a whole tape of different tracks and they just ran the tape and I had to audition and I had to, on the spur of the moment, put a lyric on each tune as soon as it started. And they gave me something like 15 tunes and I did it, you know, and they were like, you're the only one that's ever done this. So I, instead of doing one tune, they actually took three tracks. I'd get, I only gave them three, you know, but they said, you know, you are the Banton. So my name changed from Rankin Pato to Pato Banton. You know, I just want to say peace and love and stay positive, man. And those who I don't see tonight, I guess I'll see you next time. God willing.